Sometimes we have bad days, right? Some of us, we feel like we kind of live there in those bad days, right? Man woke up one day. He was in the hospital in traction, and his insurance agent was there. And he turned to him and said, now that you're awake, you need to know. I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. The good news is that you were covered when you fell off the roof. The bad news is that we don't cover the landing. <laughs> yeah, some of us have had a bad week or maybe a bad month or a bad year. Um, we've gone through several rough spots, and honestly, maybe the one that we're in right now calls the, all the others to pale in comparison. Uh, an older couple were reminiscing about the old days. And the, the husband turns to his wife and he says, you know, sweetheart, I think I have safely brought you through all of those rough spots. And she very tenderly leaned in and said, yes, sweetheart, I'm sure you didn't miss a one. And <laughs> you're going to think about that. <clears throat> Zach and Kate shared, Zach in particular, shared a few months ago uh, a very difficult time that they were going through, and they had been saving up money for a van. Kate's pregnant, of course, with baby number three, and a third car seat just doesn't fit in their car. Zach has a truck. That's not going to work to fit everybody in the family. And so, you know, what are they going to do when they all have to leave and together? And so they, he'd been saving up money, and in the, he's calculating how much the, he can sell the car for and then add that, and we can buy this vehicle, a, a van, okay? A van that would be able to seat uh, not just the three car seats, but if they have even more babies. So, okay, great plan. And he related to us that he felt that God had called them to a conference in the beginning of June. And I truly believe that God had done this. God ministers so much to them. However, as they were coming back from this, Zach began to realize, you know, I need to check our finances. And he began to realize that this didn't exactly fit too well in this plan to buy a, a van, at least financially. And he had to have one of those sit-downs. Wives, have you ever had that happen with your husband? You either sit him down or he said, sweetheart, we got to talk. And it's a financial talk. And you're wondering, okay, now what do we do? And Zach realized, wow, I need to repent because I did not, I did not put our finances under the scrutiny that I needed to. And he, he had to repent to his wife. He repented um, you know, before the Lord. He shared with us. He humbled himself. And he's basically said, okay, God, what do we do? Because we don't have enough money. He tried selling the car. And he realized he had to take $1,000 off the car just to sell it. And it's like, God, I don't know what you're going to do. Because the type of man that we need that's going to be decent and, and low enough miles, we can't afford that. And then I said, Zach, not to like totally upset the apple cart here, but how are you planning on selling your car and then buying your van? It took me four months. So I mean, how, how are you going to do this? And he looked at me and said, I don't know. And I said, well, we're just going to pray, all right? Let's just pray. And you know, God, when we, when we blow it, church, when we blow it, and all of us, we have been in that boat, when we blow it, and we just confess that to the Lord, if we're not careful, we can feel like, yeah, God says, this good thing I wanted to give you, well, I'm just not going to give it to you anymore. And we can feel, as, we can feel God's displeasure. And 
I just encourage that God, when you humble yourself, God just does amazing things and he extends mercy. And scripture says his mercies are new every morning. And, and so we just pray, God, show us. You know, God, show Zach and, and Kate how you're going to bring this about. Let me tell you how we brought it about. One week, in the beginning of the week, he came across a van. It was older than what they were looking for, but the miles were actually less. As he checked it out with the leather interior, it was well-kept. It was like, whoa, this is amazing. And the most amazing part of it was how it would fit in with their budget, much less than they originally planned. And so, okay, now, God, we got to sell the car. That following Saturday morning, someone came by with cash, bought his car, he turned around and went to the dealership and bought the van. This is just the goodness of God. It didn't take him four months, church. <laughs> um, amen? It, it took him less than, I don't know, two hours. <laughs> this is just the nature of God. And some of you feel like your back is pressed up against the wall, and you're like, God, I... I truly don't know how you're going to get me out of this mess. I truly don't know what you're going to do in this situation. I really don't. And I want, I want you to know that God has something very amazing for you. you. When God comes through, you will step back with your hand over your mouth and say, Lord, did you really just do that? I remember when I was a squirrely kid, and I, at that time in my life, and that was a very short season, by the way, God had actually gifted me in sports. <laughs> I could actually do them. And I won some trophies, and my dad had won some trophies, and so we had this little trophy case in the corner of our room. And whenever my friends would come over, I needed to make sure that they saw. <laughs> True story. What an insecure kid, right? I redefined that term, by the way, insecurity. And I brought them in. I showed them the, the trophies and such. And just so you know, yeah, wow. I think back on that. And every time I do, I'm thinking, I'm so embarrassed. Well, did I really do that? And God says, yes, but isn't my grace amazing? <laughs> well, I have one from one of my kids here. And I want you to realize that God wants to come through for you because he wants to showcase, not you. I mean, that's what trophies are about, right? Showcasing you and what you have done. But God, in your situation, situation, he wants to showcase his glory. He wants to come through for you to maximize his glory so that you step back with your hand clamped over your mouth saying, I just don't believe what God did. Now, I want to ask you, in your situation, do you really believe that God can do this? And do you believe that God will do this to maximize his glory? Here, here's something that, that amazed me this past week as I was praying for the church. As I was praying for the church, I just began to realize that somewhere between 50 and 80% and probably closer to 80% of you, if I were to ask you, talk to me about one of the toughest times in your life, you would say, I'm in it right now. You feel as if there is a bullseye on your back, and you just got hit, and you're down, and you're trying to get up. 
You feel as if you have been pressed in so much. You are in the Garden of Gethsemane that I preached on last week, and your Garden of Gethsemane will always precede the cross in which you die, and Christ rises within you, amen. And it's in that Garden of Gethsemane, remember it means oil press, in which you are being pressed in. And you are being brought to this point in which you are confessing out loud, not my will, but yours be done, God. Now, here's the point of where I'm going to go with this sermon. And by the way, turn to Luke chapter 4. There is something that we can do in this situation that you're in. But that's not going to be what I'm going to focus on today. Today, I want to showcase God's glory. I want to showcase God's grace. Many of you, most of you are in your situation, and it is not, listen to me, it is not that God is punishing you. It is not that God is looking down saying, okay, one last time, here we go, boom, knock you down. No, the enemy was the one who knocked you down. Do you remember Job? What was the sin that Job did that caused God to say to Satan, sure, Do what you will, but spare his life. Do you remember? Think hard. Here's the answer. Nothing. Nothing. Job had not done anything except be righteous. Now, of course, Job sinned, just like you and me. Our problem is when we go through hard times, we go into our our closet looking for the skeletons and all the different things that we've done wrong and say, okay, God, which one of these is the reason for why you're punishing me now? And I want to tell you that though God disciplines those he loves, it's just that that's usually our default answer. I'm going through this hard time. Okay, what did I do wrong? Can I just encourage you that if it's, and by the way, if you ever did something wrong and God is bringing discipline, his purpose is to lead you out of that into a path of righteousness, into greener pastures, stiller waters, because he is good. And his discipline lasts for a short time. And it is always for our good. And he will make it abundantly clear. It's just that that's not usually why we go through hard times. And most of you are not going through those hard times because it's your fault and God is punishing you. God's disciplining you. God, like with Job, wants to showcase his glory. So there's going to be something I'm going to call you to. It's going to be very simple. But by simple, I'm not going to say easy. It's one thing. And when we are walking in the Spirit, you're going to be amazed at truly how simple and easy it can be. As we look at this story in Luke 4, With Jesus, I believe God showcases his glory. It's kind of hidden if you're not scrutinizing too carefully. But it's there, and as I highlight it, I think it's going to become abundantly clear. Now, I've already preached on this passage before. Jesus was preaching in the church or the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. Understand, he knew the landscape of Nazareth. He grew up there ever since he was a boy, a little boy. He knew that the city, the town, was built on a hill with a precipice. He knew this. So why am I saying that? Well, let's read. 
So after he spoke, and it says in verse 22, and all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, understand Jesus is anointed by the spirit at this point. Let's see what happens as a result of Jesus being anointed. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, the reason why Jesus is saying this, because it can kind of seem like it's coming out of the blue. Why are you rebuking them, Jesus? Is because Matthew and Mark both tell us that Luke does not, that Jesus had already been there. He had already been speaking to the people and he was able to heal only a few. Meaning only a few came to him to be healed. And because of their lack of faith, There was this resistance to his ability to heal. And now, as we read earlier, a couple weeks ago, his proclamation, he's actually the anointed one, the the Mashiach, the Christ, the anointed one of God. And so Jesus realizes that there is a resistance here with the people. And so I'm going to read on. He speaks truth to them. He does not offend them by how he says it. He doesn't cuss them out. He doesn't rant on them. He doesn't yell at them from the pulpit. Actually, he is sitting down. He is simply sharing truth. And as Paul says, speak truth in love, I am sure he is doing so in love. Well, let's find out what he says and how, what happens. I tell you the, what what church? The truth. I'm telling you the truth. Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, is telling the truth. He continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. But not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people. How many, church? All the people. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Now, I assure you, it wasn't like a 10-foot drop. To throw him off the cliff would either seriously injure him or kill him. This is how furious they were. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I I read that verse and I'm like, tell me how this happened. I'm curious. I want to know. I want to walk you through this real quickly, and we're going to move on to a couple of passages and then come back to this. But understand, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. He's speaking the truth. He's doing it in love. And as he is speaking, the entire attitude of the synagogue changes. Oh, he speaks so such gracious words. Wow, he's a carpenter's son, the son of a man who's not very educated, and yet he speaks with profound wisdom. This is what Luke is trying to tell us as we read between the lines. What grace, what words full of grace he has. 
And then he continues his sermon, and their attitudes flip-flop. They're furious with him. He rebukes them for their lack of faith. Elijah and Elisha faced the same thing. Did not go, Elijah didn't go to any Jews during the three and a half years of famine. He had to leave Israel that was filled with idolatry at the time, worship of Baal, and minister and do miracles for a Sidonian. Elisha, Naaman, the Syrian, the commander of the army of Syria, came to Elisha and by the power of God was healed. No other Jews. This was during a tremendous time of rebellion in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the people get Jesus' prophetic message here. Except, of course, they don't think it's prophetic whatsoever. They think it's probably blasphemous. They think it is. You're talking to the people of God here, Jesus. I knew you when you were a little squirt. Don't think I can't bend you over my knee again. This is what they're thinking, I'm sure. And Jesus is done, and the people are just getting ready. They're just beginning. They assist Jesus out the door. Now, I want you to think, it's the town that's built on this hill near the cliff, not the synagogue. So to get from the synagogue to the cliff was a journey. We don't know exactly how far, but as Jesus is being physically escorted out the door of the synagogue, understand anyone in Jesus's shoe or sandals would resist at this point. Well, hey, guys, look, I just want to go home, okay? My mom's waiting for me. I'm sure she's got a great meal cooked. You know, I, let me just go. No, 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 Jesus. We are taking, and they begin to manhandle him. They begin to force him, maybe grab him by the arms. I'm not reading between the lines here. It says that they drove him out of the city, the town. The Greek word there is ekbalo. It's the very same word when Jesus cast demons out. They, other places translate it drive out. It's with power. It's with authority. It's, well, spiritual. We would, in this situation, physical. They're not asking Jesus politely here. Please come with us. Oh, sure, no problem. Where do you want me to go? No, against his will. Jesus, what are you guys doing here? I got a dinner waiting for me. Mama's cooking. You know what I'm talking about. And they begin to physically remove him from the synagogue. And I'm playing with this word drive out because it is physical. It is against Jesus' will. He is struggling here. They are walking him out of the town. Jesus knew the town very well. I'm sure that he played on the brow of that hill and dangled his feet over the cliff when he was a kid. And his mama probably told him, don't ever sit down. No, I'm sure she didn't because he always obeyed her. But I, he knew this place. On the way, it dawns on him, dawns on him that this is where they're taking me. They are taking me to this cliff. Now, let's be careful here. Though Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man, and it is the Father that reveals things to him. And my question as I read this passage is, as Jesus is being escorted to his death, potential death, 
When did the father reveal to him what they were doing? And then when did the father reveal to him what he was supposed to do? All I know is that there was a long while where Jesus is being driven out, and you can only imagine the conversation. Okay, Father, I'm getting the picture here. They're taking me out of the town. They're taking me right to that cliff. It would be really nice if you did something like right about now. I've got a purpose in my life. It's not, my death is not now. What are you going to... I am sure that there was a conversation of some degree between Jesus and the Father. And the Father, no doubt, is saying, I'm going to come through on this. I'm going to come through on this. And as they take him to the cliff, and it is, it's very clear that they brought him to the edge of the cliff. It wasn't 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 yards from the cliff. It was to the edge of the cliff, and then something happened. Now, when Jesus is standing at the edge of that cliff, I am sure that there is this sense of faith. My father is going to take care of me. After all, we just read in his temptation, Satan actually reminded him from Psalm 91 that, hey, Jesus, if you jump off this cliff, God can command his angels to pick you up. If they throw me off, God's angels can pick me up so that not, I don't even stub my toe on the rocks below. What is God, what, God, what are you going to, Father, what are you going to do? And God does something here. I want you to realize the crowd is not favorably disposed to Jesus at this time. They are barricading him. He cannot get out of their grasp. He is being forced to the edge of this cliff, and they're ready to push him off. But Jesus walked through the crowd. What? Now, the only thing I can figure, it doesn't say that he said anything. It doesn't say he said, can I just say something before you kill me? Whoever is without sin, let him be the one that pushed me. He, you know, no, he pulled that one in John 8. He didn't do that there, I'm sure. If there was something of that nature, I'm sure Luke would have said it. No, but though he was manhandled, the hands dropped. Though he was being pushed, they no longer could push back. Though the angels did not need to bear him up, the angels led him through the crowd. I can only imagine. I imagine that there were demons whispering in these people's ears. Anything, many things contrary to the will of God. He deserves this. He deserves death. And the anger was just fury, it says. Anger just welling up inside. There must be justice done here. Such a blasphemer. Claiming to be the Christ. Pointing the finger at us that we are to blame? No. My point is this. Jesus was at the point, literally a physical point, in which he was about to die. But it was not his time. And many of you right now, you have been escorted to the brow of that cliff. 50 to 80% of you have mentioned to me just this overwhelming attack of the enemy. And 
the area of finances, in the area of temptations, in the area of you name it, and, and oppression. And, and it's like, God, I, where are you? And you feel as if the oppressors are about to push you off the cliff. And my word to you today, very simply, is this. Can you trust God at that moment in your life? And can you turn around and face your oppressors and walk through the crowd? And yes, you don't have the physical or spiritual ability to do this, but God does. And God is the one who will need to showcase his glory to do this in your life. Now, we have several examples of this type of miraculous occurrence, even in the Old Testament. If you were to look at Psalm 105 and Psalm 106, interesting comparison of these psalms. In Psalm 106, let me start with Psalm 106. Psalm 106 recounts the failures of Israel. From about the time of the Red Sea through the desert on into the promised land, their constant grumbling, constant complaining, God needing to discipline them so that they would cry out to him, forsake their idols, stop their rebellion, turn back to God and say, God, save us. And for God to then give them a deliverer who would lead them out of physical bondage so that they would repent and truly turn to the Lord and find spiritual freedom. Over and over and over again. Psalm 105, totally different. Though Psalm 106 focuses on Israel's failings and how God had to rescue them out of that, not the case with Psalm 105. Psalm 105, we find Israel in slavery in Egypt. Know this. They were not in Egypt in slavery because of their sin. Egypt was not the place where God punished them. Yet they were in slavery. They were whipped. Many had died. There was such a burden placed upon them that they were crying out to God, save us or we die. Some of you, that's, yeah, that's me right now. I'm at the edge of that place. God, save me or I die. And God, in that psalm, showcases his glory. He brings punishment, judgment upon Egypt with 10 plagues to showcase his glory. He brings Egypt to the point of as a nation, they're crumbling. Their economy is being destroyed. The firstborn of every family dies. What a sorrow grips that nation so that Pharaoh gives the command and he tells them, leave my country. I don't want you here anymore. You are a plague to me. I'm paraphrasing. And Israel leaves Egypt. They are now in this process of going to the mountain of God and then on to the promised land. But on their journey, they start wandering here and there. The cloud is doing this funny maneuvering over the desert back and forth, and Pharaoh hears about this and said, they're lost. Why did we let them go? His heart becomes hardened. He, he brings his army together, chases after them, and finally Israel finds themselves in front of the Red Sea, a portion anyway of the Red Sea. Well, we're not going to cross here. 
Unfortunately, by that time, Pharaoh's army shows up. And the people begin to panic. What are we going to do? Moses, did you lead us out of the promise, out of Egypt to die here in the desert? And it says that they begin to complain to God. Genesis chapter 14, as Pharaoh approached, verse 10, the Israelites looked up and there was the Egyptian army marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What, what, are you, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? Listen to this. Let us serve the Egyptians. We don't want freedom, really? It would have been better for us to serve, excuse me, be enslaved to, let's be real, the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now listen to me. He's so patient right now. This is what he says, but he's firm. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Church, they're hemmed in. They can't cross the river. They cannot turn around and face the army of Egypt. They'll be slaughtered. What are they going to do? Do not be afraid. Number two, stand firm. Number three, see God's deliverance. I want you to hear a prophetic word in that for you. In your situation, my friend, see the deliverance of God. See his deliverance. It is coming. See his deliverance. Can you trust him? You're seeking to walk in the spirit, which is saying, not my will, but yours be done. It is this faith walk, this surrender to him that says, no matter what happens, I will praise you and I will seek to glorify you and whatever you do in my life. I know it's going to be good and it will maximize your glory. I am convinced of this. So God, not my will, but yours be done. Glorify your name. Church, the cross had to come before the resurrection. And here they are. And, he, and Moses tells them, see, see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Okay, so that's your part, church. That's your part. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Be still. Scripture says in another place, be still and know that I am God. When he's saying be still, he doesn't mean like, frozen like a statue, don't move. He's saying rest in me. Don't be afraid. Can you do that? In, in the midst of your situation, can you do that? Can you allow God to stir up faith in you, in your situation, that you just step back and say, okay, God, your will be done. Maximize your glory today, today. And this is what God did. He said, Moses, here's what I want you to do. Take your staff and extend it over the Red Sea. Cool symbolism, Lord. I'm not sure that's going to work. What are you wanting to do? Just do it. Hold up your staff. And as he does that, all night, all night, 
a wind blows and begins to separate a pathway for them to walk on. It's not just a pathway, church. It was so dry, they didn't get their feet muddy. That's what the scripture tells us. Dry ground. In the meantime, it says the angel of the Lord moved itself to come between the Israelites and Pharaoh's army. All the while, it is darkness where the Egyptians are, but light where the Israelites are. And God is doing this amazing work. And the Egyptians are saying, man, come on, I want, what's, what's going on here? What's, what's going on? I want to see. Why can't we get through this? I don't know what God did. You know, one of those force fields. I don't know. They couldn't get through. They could not touch the people of Israel. I'm sure they tried. At some point, as Israel had crossed, they waited. The Egyptians waited there for hours. The people of Israel began to cross. And when they were done, that barrier, God's angel removed himself. And Pharaoh said, charge, charge after them. Don't let any single one of them survive. He was furious, I'm sure. And the entire Egyptian army with their chariots and everything on dry ground, by the way, charging across. And you can only imagine how many feet from shore the lead warrior was and the waters caved in. Not one Egyptian survived, not one. They all drowned in that sea. That's how God brought deliverance. They were not in Egypt because of their sin. They were not being punished. God brought them out and brought them to this place to showcase his glory. Not ours, but his glory. For Jesus, at some point, the father had to communicate to him, son, Walk through the crowd. I'm, I'm sorry. Just say that one more time. Walk through the crowd. Because Jesus did only what the Father showed him. The Father communicated to him what to say. Now, I'm kind of reading into this, but I'm sure at some point the Father said, walk through the crowd. And that is a word to you this morning, my friends. Walk through the crowd. You will see the Egyptians plundered. You will see them destroyed, and you will never see them again. And the entire Egyptian army drowned in the depths of the sea. There's hist archaeologists are still trying to piece together Egyptian history. Can I tell you that there is one part in Egyptian history that completely baffles all of the archaeologists, except the Christian ones who are getting the message. And they look at this point in which a, a people called the Hyksos, and the historians Menetho, he says, we read in Egyptian chronologies that the Hyksos came into Egypt and there was no battle. Egypt was completely economically destroyed and they did not fight back. The Hyksos just walked right in. Archaeologists believe that the person who wrote that was simply being poetic. Of course there was a battle. No, you're reading into what the man wrote. He didn't say anything about a battle. He said everything about the Hyksos coming into Egypt, and they ruled for hundreds of years with great oppression in Egypt. Now, we don't know who the Hyksos were, 
But can I tell you why they walked in? Because my God drowned the Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea and had devastated the land with the 10 plagues. I, I think I know the answer. One day the archaeologists, the secular ones, will wake up and realize, whoa, maybe the Bible does give us the answer. Anyway, God is speaking to some of you, and he is saying, my friend, walk through the crowd. And your crowd that's opposing you, that is manhandling you, if you will, that is forcing you to the edge of that cliff, out of the town, with death looming at your feet. For some of you, that crowd are obstacles, maybe even oppressors. Perhaps they're lies about the nature of God that are stirring up doubts about who God really is, that he's not very loving, that maybe he has forsaken you. There are lies about who you are in Christ, and you just cannot seem to get that monkey off your back, if you will, and you keep listening to it, and you feel so convinced. I know what the Bible says, but this, these, this, wow, I, I am unworthy. I am a failure. I did blow it. God certainly is punishing me. I, whatever he's called me to for the future, forget that. I've just blown it too much. I am unqualified. I can't. Thank you so much for confessing the truth that you can't. Because it was never about you in the, in the first place. It was about showcasing God's glory. Gideon's 300. I'm so glad. I, Gideon, I am sure, at the very end said, Jesus or God, thank you for the 300 more than the 32,000. That's how many was originally given him. You know what? Thank you, God, for my weaknesses. Thank you for those times in which I know I can't. But in those times, I confess, you can. Maybe some of those obstacles you need to walk through are the confusion about the truth. And that confusion can immobilize us. If we were to be at least emotionally removed from the situation, we could think clearly, but we're in the midst of this emotion, in the midst of this crisis, and we're, well, where is God, and is he going to come through, and what about, I've, I've got to have this money, it's got to be paid by this time tomorrow, or, or God, you know, the, my boss, he, I have to have this project, it's got to be perfect, I've never done a perfect project before, he's going to fire me, how am I going to support my, we just moved into this house two years ago, God, what am I going to do? And there can be, emotionally, there can be this confusion that can come over us. When Katie Beth was a little girl, she was about three years old. Yeah, about three years old. She had just been through a traumatic experience in that she had gotten hit by a truck. Yeah, very traumatic. Sitting on a, a, a 12-year-old girl's shoulders, crossing Traffic that was supposed to be going only 25, and this truck was probably exceeding 35. They saw the skid marks of the truck, and they figured it had to have been more than 35 miles an hour. My wife saw Delia put her foot on the curb as the truck was skidding sideways past her. And she thought, oh, she's okay. And as the truck slid by, she was there on the floor, on the ground. And she rushed to her daughter and to Delia. They'd been hit by a truck. 
and the shock. And of course, the call that I get, wow. It traumatized Katie Beth for a while in her life. I remember going to a 4th of July fireworks. She was utterly terrified. Could not deal with it. She buried her face in my chest as we laid down and watched the fireworks. And we eventually had to leave. I can explicitly remember one day, Meredith and I, and I'd just gotten Kate out of her car seat and we were walking into a courtyard where we lived. Not a very, we just had to cross the, uh, a little lawn of the apartment and go around in the back and a helicopter flew over. And Kate had gotten out of my hand, walking towards her mother, and she looked all around and she was overcome with fear. And she just started running all over, darting back and forth. Here, I said, sweetie, what are you doing? What's wrong? She was terrified, and I realized the helicopter was filling her heart with fear. She was in such confusion, she didn't know what to do. And I finally caught her, and I just held her in my arms. And I said, sweetie, your daddy's here. You're safe. You're safe. And she just began crying. And some of you, you just write today, you just need to put your head on your heavenly father's chest and hear his words. It's your daddy. You're safe. You're safe. Let him remove that confusion and the turmoil, the emotional turmoil in your life. And allow him to showcase his glory for you today. Some of us were weary. We're just weary from the struggle. We just, we want to give up. You know what, God, this Christian thing that you called me to some years ago, it's, it's just too hard. I'm walking away. It was easier in the world. Nagging problems. No matter how hard you tried, don't go away. You're in an impossible financial situation right now. You are overwhelmed with temptation trying so hard not to give in. Your oppressors, the crowd, has brought you to the edge of the cliff, and your heavenly Father is whispering these words in your heart. Walk through the crowd. Push path. No, you won't even have to push, because God will do that for you. As he pushes back, the oppression the lies, the confusion, the fears, the overwhelming dread. As the Israelites faced the Egyptian army, filled with fear, they cried out to the Lord. They were panicking. God is speaking to you right now. Walk through the crowd. Be still. And you will see my deliverance. God has promises for us. As I read these, here's what I'd like you to do. When I am done reading a promise, I want you as a church to say in response, yes and amen. I want you to see yourself 
as I read these promises, I want you to imagine yourself walking through that crowd and allowing God to showcase his glory. Church, I want you to, to say this firmly with conviction and faith. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. Yes and amen. I'm going to read one more of these because there's three on here. But I want you to, when I'm done, I want you to say, church, with deep conviction and faith, yes and amen. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes and amen. I leave the gift of peace with you, my peace, not the kind of fragile peace given by the world, but my perfect peace. Don't yield to fear or be troubled in your hearts. Instead, be courageous. Yes and amen. Some of these are long. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the, the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Yes and amen. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. Yes and amen. And my God, will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Yes and amen. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Yes and amen. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Yes and amen. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He is going out. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the shearers, as the, excuse me, I can't read that word. As, I, yeah, as the showers. There we go. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Yes and amen. He that believeth on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Yes and amen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Yes, and amen. Father, thank you that your promises are yes and amen. Because you are faithful. You will never turn your back on who you are. You are good. You are kind. You are full of grace and truth. And faithfulness extends to the heavens.
gives us rest. Would you show yourself how faithful you are, Jesus? And God, would you empower me to believe and walk in the crowd? Be with every one of us here, Lord God. That our oppressors who have been coming at us from so many directions, may we see our deliverance. And may we never see these oppressors again. That's our prayer, God. You are faithful. In Jesus' name.